Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Thursday on the Three Martini Lunch. So glad you are with us. Your stool is prepared for you. And Jim, we have no good martinis today. We have a theme, though. The theme is hacks. We've got a couple of cyber hacks. We've got a media hack. We've got a good life hack as our sponsor today. That is Bowl and Branch. You can find them at bowlandbranch.com. And with the promo code Martini, get $50 off. And then we'll talk about uh, briefly the story that everybody's expecting to drop like an anvil here in Washington later today. That has nothing to do with politics. But first, we get on to hack number one. The Russians are hacking. Big surprise, right? Uh, it's not like they've ever done anything like that before. This time, they're apparently hacking COVID data. And uh, it's not just some random accusation here. The United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada all accusing Russia of being involved with this. It's a, a nefarious group known inside the UK. Uh, that is believed to be connected to Russian intelligence. Here's CNN's Nick Robertson with more of the story. What they are saying is very clear, that these operatives that the, that the government here, the National Cybersecurity Center, believes are very likely connected to Russian intelligence operations, and we've heard them speak about this in the past as well, very likely connected to Russian intelligence operations, have been involved in trying to steal or get knowledge of, at least, information that's being used to look after um, the global population in this pandemic. It is a very, very sensitive issue. So, Jim, it could be that Russia's flying blind on their own coronavirus issues, but more likely, Russia just enjoys hacking people and seeing where other people are vulnerable. So what do you make of this, and what do you make of the three countries saying flat out, yeah, this is happening? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, right at this very moment, how many pieces of information are more valuable than the latest research on coronavirus vaccines? Maybe the nuclear codes for the, to the football for the president of the United States. Maybe how NATO would respond to a Russian invasion of Europe, you know, or, or uh, how the U.S. would defend Taiwan from a Chinese. There, there's probably a very short list of things that are more valuable. I don't mean just like financially, but I think also like just geostrategically. The first country to have a vaccine against coronavirus is going to be seen as the world's savior. It's going to suddenly have a bazillion other countries that are the discovering country or corporation's best friend. And you, once you have that formula, and by the way, you know, there are several uh, efforts at a vaccine that are looking pretty darn promising. We probably won't get it till the end of the year or beginning of next year, but uh, we're, we're liking what we see in a lot of fronts. Once you have that, you just have an unbelievable amount of, of power. Uh, you have an unbelievable amount of political power, you know, geopolitical, diplomatic. Everybody in the world will want to be your friend. So there is a race for the vaccine. And by the way, probably we will see more than one country discover it. But if you're the first and you can start helping other countries out with it, you will, you know, this is the sort of thing that very few people will ever forget. Thus, everybody wants to find it. And if you can, you know, get your answers by cheating off the uh, term paper of the guy next to you, why not do something like that? The second thing that kind of comes to mind from this, Greg, is that whenever the topic turns to Russia, yes, President Trump is, seems to be very soft on Russia. He seems to be very uh, easygoing regarding Vladimir Putin in his personal statements. 
in ways that drive uh, all kinds of people batty, particularly Republicans, people who are Russia hawks long before Trump was on the scene. We've been a little bit tougher in terms of our, uh, you know, aid to the Ukrainians and things like that, although we saw the infamous Oval Office conversation between Trump and the Ukrainian president. Trump has not been as consistent a foe of Vladimir Putin and Russia as many folks would like to see. And we've also seen a good chunk of the Democratic Party basically become born again Russian hawks that, you know, after applauding all the Obama administration's moves, Hillary Clinton and the reset button back in 2009, uh, Barack Obama's debate statement to uh, Mitt Romney, you know, the the 80s skull, they want the foreign policy back. (laughs) That somewhere really recently, the Democratic Party suddenly realized that Vladimir Putin is not a nice guy and the Russian government is hostile, an argument that they vehemently rejected almost to the end of Obama's presidency. Maybe it was the invasion of Crimea that finally shook them off of it. And even then, they didn't really want to focus it. It was only after the perception that Vladimir Putin helped Donald Trump that it really turned into a big driving issue amongst a lot of Democrats. Look, Trump may not be president starting January 20th. He may win a second term. He may be around for another four more years. But at some point, Trump will not be president. I hope the Democratic Party keeps this anti-Russia um attitude and keeps this hardline stance against them because we as we see from this hacking russia is not a good guy russia is a malevolent force on many fronts in this world the russian government is a bunch of bullies and it needs to be stood up against but my sneaking suspicion greg is that this is driven much more by anti-trump animosity than genuine anti-vladimir putin animosity and that once there's a democrat in the oval office a lot of Democrats will stop worrying about Russia. And I think this news about the hacking and the vaccines indicates why that would be such a serious mistake. Absolutely right. Uh, Putin and his uh, diabolical intel efforts are always with a purpose. And uh, as we know, he has plenty of proxies around that will do the work. So uh, good on the U.S., the U.K., and Canada for calling this out. And hopefully it was detected before a whole lot of damage was done is kind of a theme for our second martini too but in the meantime let's talk about our friends over at uh, bowl and branch jim uh, we talked about them on friday and at that point i hadn't gotten the sheets yet but i knew they were coming later that day and so the doorbell rang i can't remember if it was the postal service or ups that dropped it off and wasn't sure who it was so i opened the door and there's the box sitting on the porch and you know it was like the wells fargo wagon coming in uh the music man or the phone book in the jerk. I was really excited to get these sheets just to, to see what all the hype was about that three former presidents sleep on these things. And as soon as you open the box, oh man, fantastic stuff. Very soft. And the thing is, the more you use them and the more you wash them, especially in the first few uses, it actually gets softer. So what do millions of Americans and three former U.S. presidents have in common? They all agree that Bolin Brand sheets are the softest and most comfortable, pure, organic cotton sheets on earth. Bolin Branch cotton is rain-fed, pesticide-free, and carries the highest organic certification. And that is why it is so soft. Because they work with family-owned mills all over the world to expertly weave every set of Bolin Branch sheets with the highest level of craftsmanship. It is a quality that you can feel the moment you open the box. And since they sell direct to you, Bowl and Branch sheets start at just $160. They are $1,000 quality for a fraction of the price. Plus, you can sleep on them for one month risk-free. 
and I have gotten the chance to sleep on them too. And you can tell as soon as you lay down on them that something's different about them. And the sleep has been uh, fantastic. Uh, it's been pretty warm here lately, uh, and I've felt very cool sleeping and also very, very comfortable. Great sheets. And right now, you will get $50 off any sheet set at bowlandbranch.com with promo code MARTINI. That's spelled B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code MARTINI for $50 off. Bowlandbranch.com. Promo code MARTINI. Restrictions may apply. See bowlandbranch.com for details. All right, let's get on to hack number two now, Jim. And yesterday, the blue checks on Twitter were shut down because hackers were targeting some blue checks. They went after folks like Elon Musk and Joe Biden and Barack Obama and Kanye West and Kim Kardashian and a bunch of other celebrities and uh, imploring people to send them Bitcoin so they would double the offer. But uh, that's not exactly what was really going on. Nobody was really asking people for Bitcoin donations. It was a hack. Here's Anna Werner over at CBS explaining it more. Here's how it worked. The sophisticated scammers took over verified accounts, then convinced Twitter users following those accounts to send Bitcoin, a digital currency that can be traded for dollars, to a website and promised double the money back. Within hours, Twitter limited functions for all verified accounts and acknowledged the hack, saying we are investigating and taking steps to fix it. So the hack was actually to Twitter, not Twitter users. So they got in that way. And so, Jim, you're a verified user of Twitter. What do you make of Twitter's security failure here? And, and what does it mean going forward? A lot of folks are worried that, you know, we're in a political season here. Hackers could go in, take over somebody's prominent political account and put out garbage on there. So what do you think? Yeah. So the first thought is, like, if you're if you gain the ability to send out tweets from some of the biggest names on Twitter, and you use it to run a Bitcoin scam. <laughs> the second thing is like, and people actually thought like, oh yeah, Barack Obama wants to pay double my Bitcoin. Let me send him a, look, I would ask any single person out there, at least any American out there, didn't you send enough money to Barack Obama for eight years? <laughs> Through your taxes? You know. Okay, Elon Musk, okay, he's a little bit weird sometimes. You know, he's, he's, he's con created consumer market flamethrowers and he blasts cars into space for no good reason. All right, maybe he's weird, but you really think he's just going to double your, your Bitcoin? No, no, no. And the whole point of Bitcoin is it's very hard to trace online. Did no one smell any odor coming off of this offer? It's one of those things where, like, I know, you know that we should get to the bottom of this. We should find who's responsible, Greg, but... Um, if you fell for this, it's kind of just Darwinism in action. You, know, you really should you should know better by now. As for the security risk at Twitter, look, they should be laying awake nights. This is a big deal. I myself was not particularly bothered. I did notice this stuff going on. I guess it was you know early in the evening yesterday. Tried sending out a tweet and it didn't go through, and it, I I lost my ability to tweet as as did everyone else with a blue check mark, Greg. And you, this is a, I'm sure there are some people who are breaking out in hives. Greg, do you, do you not realize how like strangely excited I felt with the thought that I could never send a tweet again? <laughs> I know everyone's like, well, Jim, you don't have to. Yeah, I don't have to. But you know, like, you send out my articles, the click-through rate gets good. If I, it's like, if I turn Twitter into an entirely passive, read-only, no contribution system, Greg, I could probably never get canceled for anything because <laughs> I wouldn't be able to say anything. It'd be terrific, so. Um, so it, it was kind of amusing to see this. It only lasted for, I don't know, it was an hour or less than an hour. Once we all came back, there were a lot of people who had lots of fun with it. 
Um, as a lot of people, Greg, Greg I, I put out this question. A lot of people described it as like the rapture in reverse. <laughs> All the blue check marks disappeared. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the, the bigger problem is that let's imagine whoever these hackers are. Let's imagine that somebody else figures out that same backdoor or technical loophole or something like that. You could imagine a lot of ways where you could do a lot more damaging mischief um, if you uh, had the ability, you know, for example, imagine the president of the United States and you announce, you know, uh, you do a variation of the Reagan joke. I've just signed legislation outlawing Russia forever. The bombing starts in five minutes. Um, you could... Uh, send false reports about somebody having coronavirus or there being exposure or something. You could, uh, false reports of terror, you know, there, there's all kinds of stuff. And it came from, if, it, if the tweet came from a verified account with a person who had a decent amount of credibility and followers, all of a sudden people could start believing it, or at the very least you could create that kind of confusion. It's, you know, thinking of the, uh, text message from, that was accidentally sent out by the, by, oh, in Hawaii a couple of years ago. Yes. Indicating that there was an incoming, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile. Um, if you wanted to influence a campaign, you could start sending out all kinds of hateful messages out to uh, you could send out, uh, you know, all kinds of inappropriate messages out from an official account. Although people might Im immediately figure out that was a hack. The much more damaging one would be to send out messages that were uh, false, but maybe plausible. Um, I mean, my understanding, Greg, is the way they knew things were totally um, this was clearly something serious was going on yesterday was that apparently Right. In addition to all the Bitcoin messages, Joe Biden sent out a message that was coherent and uh, people people just look and say, you know what? Something's wrong. Somebody's got access to his account. So that's not the Joe Biden we know. Uh, again, a little bit scary if you think this through. The, the good news is most hackers are, are you know, not, are only out to try to figure out to get cash. You can imagine more nefarious minded people being a little more creative in their use of this ability and creating real, uh, real serious problems. But uh Thankfully, that has not happened, and we're all able to laugh about this. But uh, if Tw the you know engineering department of Twitter has some sleepless nights in the coming day, in the next couple of weeks, you easy to understand why. All right, let's go on to our final hack, Martini, and this one has nothing to do with cyber hacking. This is just political hackery, and we talk about this all the time on the Three Martini Lunch. Let's go over to MSNBC. Katie Turr, and if you haven't seen Katie Turr, it's hard to explain. I think she's technically a news anchor but it's just dripping with uh, liberal opinion and innuendo the whole time. She's talking to Tim Murtaugh and scolding him about the fact that uh, certain Republican political figures like the governor of Oklahoma and Herman Cain uh, were diagnosed with uh, COVID-19 after being at the Tulsa rally. I don't know that there's any conclusive connection to that, but it's it's plausible, I guess. She's talking about how they weren't six feet apart and there were no masks and that sort of thing. And so she was reading Tim Murtaugh, The Riot Act, uh, and he says, well, it's interesting you've got this huge concern over this, but not so much with these protests that are in the streets. I guess it's because they have a political message you like. And so Katie Turr fires back. The interview ends poorly. And then Chuck Todd comes in with the most implausible explanation of what just happened. Here's the last 50 seconds of this. People were not wearing masks inside the president's rally. There was not social distancing uh, being practiced. We saw the signs being removed uh, from seats. You so you can say you handed out hand sanitizer an and gave out masks. They, they weren't wearing them. And also Dr. Fauci today has said that uh, the incubation period for this disease could be longer uh, than, than just two weeks. So uh, Tim Murtaugh, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate all of your time. I appreciate Chuck, that over to you. speech, Katie. Thank you. 
We will have uh, the brand new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll will be unveiled today at 5 p.m. on Meet the Press Daily. And just a reminder, for what it's worth, there is no editorial point of view here uh, on any of these newscasts on MSNBC in the daytime. No editorial viewpoint on MSNBC in the daytime. My favorite part of that was the three or four seconds of awkward silence after he thanked her for the speech. But, uh, Jim, I mean... It's, it's hard to find, not find a viewpoint on cable news now. I think a couple of Fox folks still do fairly well with that, like Brett Baer. But come on, man. <laughs> if there was ever a time to, uh, you know, quote the ESPN foot, Sunday football guys, that's it. First of all, Greg, I remember, you know, on one of a kind of a periodic theme when you and I discuss MSNBC. And for, as MSNBC has kind of adopted its persona as the more liberal network, um, although I guess, you know, many people would argue CNN's now trying to give them a, a run for their money. Going back even to the Keith Olbermann days was what NBC News, the, the traditional, you know, uh, network newscast it used to be anchored by Tom Brokaw and Meet the Press going back to Tim Russert, that there was this image of NBC News as not an outspoken liberal force in journalism. And then there was MSNBC, which had adopted this persona and the inevitable question of at some point there would be tension there that basically people who signed up to work for NBC News whether or not they were, you know, liberals themselves did not necessarily want to have their partisan leanings worn proudly on their sleeves the way MSNBC had kind of adopted that as their identity. I think I think that's gone, Greg. I don't really see any pushback from NBC News center, you know, uh, mothership uh, from what, you know, uh, MSNBC is. And Chuck Todd was one of the guys you might have pointed to at some point who would ask tough questions of both sides and, you know, um, one of the better ones out there and who I think now is, uh, tougher to distinguish from the overall theme that you you know and vibe you find over at MSNBC. I, I also just thinking about that that it, the segment that led into that. Um, Tim Murtaugh is uh, you know, interacted with him on a campaign you know years and years ago. He's good at what he does. He is a you know he's a good soldier. He you are never going to get him to misstep or to offer any comment that comes across as critical of the president. He's never going to admit the president made a mistake. He's never going to get shoehorned into admitting the president didn't handle something the way he should have. He's everything a campaign wants in a campaign spokesman. Katie Turr is, you know, uh, we've, we've, you know, enjoyed poking fun at the time she's gotten stuff wrong in the past. She is perhaps the distilled essence of modern MSNBC. Having the two of them on, I'm not, I wonder which producer thought that was going to be a productive and illuminating conversation <laughs> between the two of them, because you don't see a lot of Trump campaign talking heads going on Rachel Maddow. And I don't think that Katie Turr is that is light years away from the persona and attitude and mindset of a Rachel Maddow. So I don't find it surprising that the you know conversation or interview turned into an argument and they started talking over each other and the whole thing turned into this, you know, hard to understand gobbledygook as they both talked over each other. Um, but I think that's the persona of MSNBC. I think it's what the MSNBC audience has been conditioned to want. I think people who want to find things that are more edifying and even-handed just don't watch MSNBC anymore. They've found other options, or they may they may have turned away from cable news entirely these days. So um, I don't, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about this. But to see Chuck Todd insisting, oh, there's there's no ideology at daytime of NBC News. Come on, come on, take a look at your, you know, like you. Know, by the way, isn't Joy, Joy Reid was during daytime for a long time, wasn't she? Uh, I think so. She's kind of bounced around on the. the yeah, I know she's now getting there. either the six or seven p.m. slot. She's uh, taking the hardball, taking the hardball slot. Right, you know, Matthews, he was right down the middle. <laughs>
My favorite Katie Tour moment was, uh, I think, in the in the wake of the tragedy at Parkland High School there in Florida, and she had a Second Amendment rights supporter on who gave a very cogent argument for why there should not be more restrictions on the Second Amendment, and her very nuanced response was, <laughs> and then she dismissed the gap. So um, quality television right there. <laughs> Yes, it was disgusted sighing as the counterpoint. But, uh, Jim, as we mentioned up top, nobody in Washington, at least people who follow sports on any level, and possibly even more than that, are not really paying attention to politics today because we're waiting for a possible, and it seems more increasingly, a likely bombshell from the Washington Post that uh, the controversy over the name Redskins was the least of Daniel Snyder's concerns here in the last few weeks. Uh, Apparently, there was a culture of many different things uh, that uh, is very tawdry, very salacious over at Redskins Park. We don't know the details yet, so we're not getting into it. But there's people who have suddenly resigned, including the Redskins play-by-play announcer. And it seems like um, the long knives are going to be out for the, the Snyder regime here, which uh, everybody wanted him gone, it seems like, in this town, except for me because of his dysfunction. But if what's alleged <laughs> in this report is true, he needs to be gone and gone really badly. What's been really weird over the last couple of nights is almost every reporter who covers the Redskins, uh, in some cases also just the broader NFL, have made comments that have been very vague, yes. but indicate, wow, there's a really bad story coming down the pike. Now, none of them have said it. And one of the things that's really standing out about this, Greg, is that usually when there are multiple reporters on a beat and word gets out that somebody on that beat has a huge scoop, everybody else tries to figure out what that scoop is and tries to scoop them, tries to get their (laughs) version of the story out before the other guy. This is apparently not going on in this case. Uh, the, The widespread speculation that the institution that is uh, that has uncovered this scandal or bad behavior or other problems uh, is the Washington Post. And that what it has found, there are comments that are like, you know, pointing to a toxic culture in the team. Um, and it sounds like it wasn't just, you know, somebody, you know, used an uh, uh, inappropriate metaphor in a meeting. It, it, the description is something widespread bad behavior. Um there have been a couple of reports out there. I'm not going to repeat them just because I just don't know if that's the case. It sounds like we're going to hear about it fairly soon, although nobody knows exactly when. Um, but if, if so, it, it's bad. And I, the, the one thing I, I wrote a little bit about this in the morning, Jolt, just the observation a couple of years ago, there had been this story about the team had sent the uh, cheerleaders out to a tropical island, uh, took their passports upon arrival, tried to encourage them to pose topless and other things that started to go off in a direction that made the cheerleaders uncomfortable. Um, And I kind of wonder if it's something in that vein, but uh, it remains to be seen. Everyone in Washington is buzzing about it. And I think probably what's most interesting for, for the, you know, the the, uh, political audience such as ours, which is periodically drifting more and more into the sports talk radio area um, (laughs) is the observation of the recent name, you know, name change by the Redskins and this, you know, after years of insisting they would never change, now they are. And so the interesting question is, is this because Daniel Snyder genuinely changed his mind? Or is it that he knows some sort of terrible story is going to come out down the pike and he wants to either distract people from that issue or he wants to generate some goodwill before the you-know-what hits the fan? Uh, fascinating times here in Washington. And uh, I'm sure a whole bunch of fans of the team formerly known as the Redskins would just love to get actual games going. So they could talk about something besides what's going on off the field. Yeah, there's no goodwill in this community for Daniel Snyder, at least not in a genuine way. Um, 
amazing. But uh, we will see. Jim, have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thank you very much for being with us today. Please don't forget our wonderful sponsor, Bowl and Branch. Right now, get $50 off any sheet set at bowlandbranch.com with the promo code MARTINI. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Get us on those home devices by saying, Play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. And please join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.